Good morning. My name is Tony. I'm going to read a, a portion of the passage that uh, Pastor Ben's going to preach from this morning. It's from Exodus chapter 25, <clears throat> verses 1 through 9. Uh, it's on page 61 in the Pew Bible. If you want to read along there, it'll also be on the screen. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twine, linen, goat's hair, tan ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. This is God's word. All the kids ages four through kindergarten can be dismissed now for Children's Church. We'll see them back at the end of the service. And uh, Scott, thank you for leading us in prayer and your encouragement to us to pray. I'm always strengthened and encouraged by your heart in that, brother, so thanks for pastoring us. We get to jump back into the book of Exodus today, as Scott said, and uh, we have the small task of covering six chapters this morning. So giddy up, we'll try our best. <laughs> but what does it feel like to be at home? What does the feeling of home feel like? The, the people of Denmark have actually created a word for this feeling of being at home in their unique portion of the world. And some of you may be familiar with this. It was popularized in a book uh, that came out, I think, in the last five or six years. But, but they call this concept of feeling at home, Huga. I think that's how you say it. <laughs> I had to look that up. It's pronounced, or it's spelled H-Y-G-G-E. And this concept entails being enveloped with a sense of unity and security in one's own home. The Danish people have intentionally crafted their homes to be a space of warmth and light because a lot of the time in that part of the world, it is cold and dark. And so they place great value on the feel of their homes, so much so that they've created a word to describe what it feels like to walk into a home from the cold, dark world where you feel warm and there's light. And we all want to feel at home. Businesses know this. There, there's a whole stream of entertainment that's, that profits off of our desire to feel at home, right? HGTV and the Magnolia Empire, they all profit off of our want to feel at home. And in fact, the entire Bible is a story about God carving out a home for his people in the midst of hostile elements and environments. 
From the moment that God speaks light into the darkness and chaos, he wants to create a home for his people and lead them to dwell in that home. And indeed, the book of Exodus, which we're jumping back into together this morning, is a story about God making a home for his people, even in the midst of the wilderness. God, as we've seen throughout the book of Exodus so far, has rescued his people, Israel, from Egypt, has brought them to Mount Sinai, and has given them his holy law. And now the rest of the book, from chapters 25 all the way through to the end of the book in chapter 40, except for a brief uh, excursus for historical details in three of those chapters, all of that sweep is about building this house called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, which we're going to start to look at this morning, enacts the drama of humanity coming back home. It shows us both why we feel like we are not at home and how we get back home. And most prominently, the tabernacle reveals to us that our true home is found in the presence of God himself. And so if you would pray with me this morning, and then we'll study this text together. Father, it is so easy, I confess this morning, it's in my heart today, it's so easy to come to your word without the excitement and joy and interest that we should give it. Lord, what a miracle that you speak into our existence that you break through into our lives with your very own word. So Lord, help us to be receptive this morning. Help us to hear you. And I pray that as we hear your voice, that we would hear your calling and beckoning to us to come back home to you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before we, we jump into the sermon this morning proper, I want to just say a word about how it is we're going to study six chapters of Scripture together this morning and kind of what our method's going to be together. Uh, these six chapters are filled with detailed instructions about how to make this thing called the tabernacle and all of the different elements that are going to exist inside the tabernacle, including the priest's garments. And I am not going to, by any means, try to cover all the details of these instructions this morning. We would, we would be here for hours. And some of those elements we're barely even going to touch on this morning. And so I would encourage you, maybe even with your families this week, take time to go back and read those instructions and ponder them and see the rich symbolism that the Lord showed to the people of Israel in all these different elements of the tabernacle. It will only make the drama of the tabernacle that we're going to talk about today come more alive to you as you do that. But what I do want to do this morning in our time together is give us the overarching 30,000-foot view of the main theme that these six chapters are trying to get across to us. So if you would, turn with me to Exodus 29, verses 45 and 46, we're going to be hopping around a good bit in these chapters this morning, so just beware to turn to these different passages. And while you're turning there, I'll just say, these verses are an expansion 
of chapter 25, verse 8, which Tony read for us just a moment ago, where God spells out his purpose for all of these instructions, these six chapters worth of instructions, clearly before he gives them. This is why he gives us six chapters of instruction plus on how to make the tabernacle. Exodus 29, verses 45 and 46. God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Now, throughout our study of the book of Exodus, if you've been with us through this fall, we've taken note as it's come up of this thing we've called the recognition formula, which is a really fancy way to say what God says right here. Anytime that God says, then they will know that I am the Lord, we call that the recognition formula in this book. And it's all throughout the book of Exodus. But this text helps us to clarify what type of knowing God is after, at least with his own people. You see, there's a difference between the way that you and I know our favorite celebrity and the way that we know our spouse or our children or our roommates. All right, so we know, quotes, scare quotes, uh, our favorite celebrities by their Instagram profiles, maybe, or by random Googling in their Wikipedia pages. Maybe even because you've been to a certain musician's concert once or twice, you might feel like you know them. But you know them in an entirely different way than you know your spouse or your children or your roommates. It's because one, you know from a distance. The other, you know from proximity and intimate personal relationship. And this text shouts to us that God desires for his people not just to know him at a distance. God is not content with just with what is happening on Mount Sinai, where the people are far off and he is at the top of the mountain. He wants his people to know him intimately and personally. God gives all of these instructions so that he can come make his home among his people and so they can know him up close and personal. God really wants to dwell with his people. And so as we come to these six chapters, chapters that give us detailed instructions, chapters that, if we're honest, as we try to read through the Bible every year, this is about where we start to get bogged down. As we come to these chapters, let's keep this purpose in front of our minds, that God gives these instructions so that his people can know him personally and that they can be at home in his presence. That's where this is all going. The tabernacle is the stage on which God enacts the drama of how God as God can dwell with man as man. And so let's talk about how we're going to approach this text then, our outline for this morning. So I'm going to take it in terms of that image of the tabernacle as a drama. So the tabernacle dramatizes for us three things. It dramatizes for us our exile from home, our route back home, and our true home. Our exile from home, our route back home, 
and our true home. So first, let's look at how it dramatizes for us our exile from home. And before we go any further, I want to walk through the layout of the tabernacle so so that we all have a rough picture of it in our minds. So Katie, if you could go ahead and throw that first picture up on the screen. So this is a little bit crude of a picture here because it doesn't give us any of the detail really except for the layout, but I think it's helpful because you all can actually see it and maybe even read it. Um, So I want to just walk us through how this tabernacle is laid out so we have this picture in our minds. So if you notice, there's three distinct sections of the tabernacle as it's laid out in these six chapters. There's the outer courtyard where any Israelite was welcome to come in. There was the holy place where only the priests were allowed in, that dark blue section. And then the grayish blue section there in the back is called the most holy place or the holy of holies. That is where God was supposed to dwell on the mercy seat that sat at the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And only the high priest, once a year, would enter into the most holy place, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And so each of these different things you see on this diagram of the tabernacle are are elements that are outlined in these six chapters. The altar of burnt offerings where they would make sacrifices, the bronze laver where they would the priests would wash themselves before they entered in. And then you have the table of showbread and the golden lampstand, which both in their own way symbolize the relationship between God and his people. And the altar of incense, and then inside the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. So that's just to have that visually in your mind as we start to talk about these things here. But as the Israelites walked into the tabernacle courtyard, or as the priests walked into the holy place, they were to realize two different things simultaneously. The people would have been faced with two things at the same time every time they walked into the tabernacle. The first thing they would have been reminded of is the place they were made for. The tabernacle was designed to draw the Israelites' mind back to Eden, their original home, our original home. As you read through these six chapters, there are many distinct callbacks to the Garden of Eden in the layout of the tabernacle and what was placed within the tabernacle. I'm not going to go over these exhaustively, but let me just name a few for us so you start to get the feeling of this and what it would have been like. So first, there's the three-tiered layout of the tabernacle. So you can see that up on this this diagram here, that there's the outer courtyard, the holy place, and the most holy place. And when God made the world in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, he made all of creation, he made Eden, and then he made a garden in Eden where he would dwell with his people. And not only that, but Eden and the tabernacle, as you can see here helpfully, were both made to face east, the direction that ancient temples would have been faced, showing that this is a place where God's presence dwells. In addition, God designed the whole thing with garden imagery laced all throughout it. So for instance, the lampstand, as you might be aware, was shaped like a tree, which at the centermost 
portion of the Garden of Eden, we know, was a tree. Um, As well, the priestly robe called the ephod was made with pomegranate sewed into the hem at the bottom in between the bells. So Katie, if you want to scroll over to that next picture there. So this is what the priestly garments sort of would have looked like. Uh, We were joking in the office this week. It kind of looks like what a stormtrooper would wear from Star Wars on the the breast piece there. But then if you notice, you can see it, it from a distance in this picture. But at the bottom of their robes, they had these bells then Katie, if you can go to the, that next one there. In between the bells were these little, uh, these little things resembling pomegranates. So it was all a callback to fruit and abundance and life like we would have seen in the Garden of Eden. Thanks, Katie. You can take that down. That's all for my show and tell pictures. I don't have any more than that. <laughs> As well, one more thing. The stones that the people were to bring in that we saw read in, in 25, that Tony read for us, are similar to the stones and metals that were found in the Garden of Eden. You see that in Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. But with all of these details, the, the most important similarity between the tabernacle and Eden was that God came down to dwell with his people in the tabernacle, just like he dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden. Eden would not have been home if God would not have been dwelling there with them. That is what made Eden paradise, ultimately, was God's presence with his people there. And this raises another fascinating point about these chapters. If you would, look with me at chapter 25, verse 9. This is the end of what Tony read for us earlier. In chapter 25, verse 9, God says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Now, if you go home and read through these six chapters throughout your week or later today, maybe, uh, what you'll notice is that this refrain of you will make it concerning the pattern that I show you That refrain resounds all throughout these chapters. That comes up again and again. So what does that mean? Well, I think first of all, it means that the tabernacle itself was patterned after Mount Sinai. So again, we see that three-tiered structure. That at Mount Sinai, the people stood at the base of the mountain. The elders of Israel went up onto the slopes of the mountain But only one man, Moses, ascended to what we might call the Holy of Holies at the top of the mountain. And the tabernacle was patterned after Mount Sinai in that way. It was like a mobile Mount Sinai. But there's more to that command. And it becomes more clear as it's repeated in the chapters that follow. That Moses is not only to make the tabernacle after the pattern of Mount Sinai, But he's to make the tabernacle after the pattern of a blueprint that he receives on Mount Sinai of the heavenly tabernacle. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 24 calls the tabernacle a copy of the true things, of God's true dwelling place in heaven. 
So not only was the tabernacle designed to be a mobile Mount Sinai, in a sense, it was made to be an outpost of heaven on earth. The tabernacle, like the Garden of Eden, was a place where God's domain and ours overlapped, where heaven and earth came together. Our true home exists where God's dwelling place and our dwelling places overlap. We were made to live in the presence of God with heaven and earth united as one. But while all of this would have reminded the Israelites of Eden, when they walked into the tabernacle, they would have also been reminded immediately that they were not in Eden any longer. Have you ever experienced a moment in your life when it was very, when the reality was pressed in on you that you were not at home or that you don't feel at home? I was just talking with Whitley and a friend that we had over for dinner this past week, and he and Whitley both have moved a lot growing up. And they were sharing about this common experience they had of having to go to a new school and having to walk in on that first day and, and the social pressure and anxiety that meant that it meant all of the time having to make new friends and come into a new place. And they didn't use these words exactly, but every time they walked into a new school, they were faced with the stark reality that they were not at home. And that's what it would have been like for the Israelites walking into the tabernacle. They were faced with this reality that they were not at home. Think about this. The first thing that an Israelite would have seen if he or she walked into the tabernacle would have been an altar, a bloody altar where animals were sacrificed morning and evening every day. And their priests, a gift from God, but their priests were imperfect. They had to be washed. They had to have sacrifices made for them. But what would have been most clear to the Israelites, what would have shown them most that they were not at home is the fear of being in God's presence and the distance from God that they would have still experienced in the tabernacle that comes from human sin. You see, Adam and Eve did not experience this same fear of God's presence in the garden. But a holy God a God who is completely set apart in his righteousness and justice cannot dwell with sinful people without consuming them in the same way that we cannot get too close to the sun without being burned up. And so now in this tabernacle, there are barriers. Whereas in Eden, the people of God communed with him freely in the garden, the holy of holies where God dwelled, now there is a thick veil between the holy of holies where God dwelled and the rest of the tabernacle. And only the high priest once a year could enter that domain to make sacrifices for the people's sin. And there was so much trepidation involved in that, he had to wear those bells at the bottom of his robe so that if he went in unclean and God struck him down dead, they would know and could pull him out. And not only this, but all throughout the tabernacle, there were cherubim 
these angels etched everywhere into the fabric, particularly into that veil, reminding the people of the cherubim with flaming swords that God placed to guard the entrance back into the Garden of Eden. They were not at home. And we too, in this world, feel the same way. We are faced with that reality often. You see, we all desperately need the presence of God in our lives. And yet because of our sin, we are exiled from the place where God dwells. What we all need most, what you and I truly long for in the deepest parts of our being is the presence of God. This is true whether you're a Christian this morning or I would submit to you whether you're not a Christian this morning. You go down deep into the core of who you are and that is what you truly long for. We were made to find our home in God. And when we are exiled from God, we become restless, anxious. We dwell in our sin. We become fearful and divisive. In the words of our vision statement, we are wayward. We're lost and far from home. And look around us at our world and you'll quickly recognize that we aren't at home. Our world is full of war and division, and greed, and inhumane technology that exploits people for profit. The tabernacle shows us that what we long for at the core of our being is to be at home with God. And yet, it reminds us that we are not at home. That we are, in one sense, still far from God. But thankfully... The tabernacle shows us not only our exile from home, but it shows us our route to get back home. So how does the tabernacle show us this? What is the way back home for us? Simply put, our route back home is through sacrifice. Let's return to the Garden of Eden for a moment. And that passage that Benjamin read at the call to worship about Adam and Eve being thrust out of the garden and the cherubim that guarded the way back in. If they tried to get back into the garden of Eden in their sin, if Adam and Eve decided they were going to try to get back into the garden, the flaming sword of the cherubim would have come down upon them. Death was the punishment for our sin. And so if we are going to get back home, something must be done about our sin. And this is what is symbolized for us in the sacrificial system of the tabernacle. As we said earlier, immediately when you walked from east to west into the tabernacle, the first thing that you would have seen is the altar. You would have been faced with blood. And this was to remind you that this animal went under the sword so that you could come into God's presence. That animal stood in your place and was judged for your sin so that you could come back home. Now, many of you 
would see this and say, okay, I, I get the logic of that, but isn't that overly gruesome? Isn't that barbaric? Doesn't this just show us that, that God really isn't any different than any other bloodthirsty deity that we would read about in history books in the ancient world? Well, I would say, yes, this is barbaric. This practice of sacrifice was barbaric. The tabernacle was virtually a slaughterhouse. It would have been a gory place. You would have seen blood all the time. And think about being an Israelite living in the camp. The smell of animals being killed and burned would have permeated through the camp. There would have been no way to escape that. The tabernacle was a gory and gruesome place. But the reason for that was not arbitrary. The tabernacle was barbaric, not because God is barbaric, but because our sin is barbaric. It reveals to us the true nature of our sin. Think about this for just a second. What we do to one another when our hearts are not at home in God. Immediately after Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, you go to the next chapter, and what happens? Cain murders his brother, Abel. We are the ones who unleashed death and violence into this world. Sin leads to death, and these sacrifices remind us that the punishment fits the crime. But God is not barbaric. On the contrary, these sacrifices reveal to us the kindness of God. Let me say this to you in a way that might wake you up a little bit to the reality of this. We should be grateful that God is not a germaphobe. He steps down into the culture of death and provides a way to deal with our sin and for us to enter back into dwelling with him. That's what the sacrifices show us. And we see this theme highlighted most prominently in the instructions about the mercy seat, the area in the innermost part of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, where God was said to sit and dwell with his people. So would you look with me at chapter 25, verse 22? This is at the end of the instructions for the Ark of the Covenant, and it's talking about the mercy seat in particular, that place above the Ark. God says there at the mercy seat, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from the, between the two, the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you, excuse me, about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So that mercy seat, the place that signified God's rule over his people by his law, the Ten Commandments that were put into that ark, the very, is the very place where God said that he would meet with his people. And that place is the place of atonement. We read in Leviticus chapter 16 of this institution called the Day of Atonement that Israel would begin to practice. 
The one day out of the year that the high priest was able to go into the Holy of Holies. And on that day, the high priest would enter and sprinkle the blood of a perfect sacrifice onto the mercy seat, that throne of God. And this sacrifice enabled the holy God, the God of Mount Sinai, to rule and dwell among his people without consuming them. So you see, the very place where God says, I will meet with you, is the place of climactic sacrifice. The way back home is through sacrifice, through the blood of another on our behalf. And you see, the tabernacle dramatizes for us the fact that God does everything possible to ensure that his people can dwell with him in safety and security. Do you see all these things, all these detailed instructions were given so that God can make a home with his people, so that a holy God can dwell with a sinful people and not consume them, but live with them and dwell among them. And while all of this is beautiful and wonderful, the tabernacle was still inherently limited. God was so close to the people, yet he was shrouded in the darkness of the Holy of Holies, behind one veil to the priests and two veils to the rest of the people. Continual bloody sacrifices had to be made for this to be possible. And we haven't even mentioned yet the fact that the tabernacle was temporary. It was a tent it was designed so that you could tear it down and set it up and move it around. It was beautiful, but it didn't have permanence. I think Bible commentator Tim Chester sums up this tension really well. Listen to what he says about what it would have been like to be a priest to walk into the holy place in the tabernacle. He says, as you stood before the veil... There on your right was the bread of presence, and on your left was the lampstand, both promising a relationship with God. But there in front of you was the curtain preventing a relationship with God. It hung there to protect you from God because sinful people cannot survive an encounter with the holy God. And so as you stood before the curtain, home was so close and so far away. Where you needed to be and longed to be was both showcased and blocked off. The tabernacle was so full of promise and so full of danger. And there's a reason that I've been using the language of drama to describe the tabernacle throughout this sermon. And that's because the tabernacle isn't the real thing. The tabernacle isn't the final thing. It isn't the ultimate thing. It's a drama that points us to the true and ultimate sacrifice, priest, and home, which is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true tabernacle, heaven coming down to invade earth. 
He, God himself, came down to earth, tabernacling in human flesh in order to carve out a home for his people. He did this by living a perfect life and becoming a perfect sacrifice for sin. Jesus on the cross was the true sacrifice, the one which all these bloody sacrifices merely pointed to and dramatized, the one who could actually make atonement for sin. He was exiled from the camp. He hung on a cross outside the city and had the flaming sword of death come down on him so that we could be brought back home. And Jesus then rose from the dead and ascended to the throne of his father where he now sits as our true high priest who constantly and faithfully applies his perfect sacrifice in the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat pleading for us before his father by his blood, ensuring that we will make it home. And one day, the book of Revelation promises us that God will bring heaven down to earth and that we will dwell at home with him forever. That's good news. But we're not there yet, as Scott highlighted But in the meantime, Jesus does not leave us as orphans. You don't have to turn there, but let me read for us John chapter 14, verse 23. This is what Jesus says to his disciples the night before he is crucified. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. So if anyone truly loves me and trusts in me, that will be evidenced by a life of obedience to me and my father. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him. Now catch this. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus is our true home. We find our true home in the presence of God himself. And right now, even as we as the church, like the people of Israel, are in the wilderness, Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, carves out a home in the hostile environment of this world, in the hostile environment of our hearts. Jesus makes his home with us now by his Holy Spirit, such that we become mini tabernacles walking around this earth, the place where God dwells. God wants you to know that he is Lord, not from far off, but up close and personal. And so as we sit in this time period, before that final day, when our home will fully and finally be with God. We have a home in him now. And so church, we can cease our restless striving and searching for something to satisfy us here. We can cease our constant worrying about what goes on in this world. We can cease our jockeying for position over others. We can cease trying to make atonement for our own sin. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life who has opened the way home through his very own blood. God has not only made a way home, 
but has made his home with all of us who trust in the sacrifice of Jesus. And so for us now, as we look forward to that day when we will be home with him, even now, we can relax and rest into the security and comfort that comes from being at home in the presence of God right now. Let me pray for us, and I'll invite the band to come back up and lead us in one final song. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you do not leave us as orphans in this world, but that you come by the power of your Holy Spirit and make your home with us here. Thank you for this thread throughout the Bible that is so beautiful and apparent to our eyes that you were a God who was not satisfied with Sinai. You were not satisfied for us to know you only in terror and smoke and fire, but you were a God who wanted us to know you up close and personal. And so, Lord, may we relish that today. May we rest in that today. And may we truly know the experience of what it means to dwell with you. Make our hearts at home. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.